He was eight years older than me. Yes, his name is Shem. I know that's weird, okay? He liked to draw. But he didn't like to draw just anything. He liked to actually draw birds. Go figure. So what do I do? Little six-year-old Joel. Get out my construction paper, my markers, my magic markers, the thick pen, you know, not the erasable kinds. Those never worked very well. You got the real, real deal, right? And I started to draw birds. I practiced and I practiced and I got to let you know kind of what my art looked like, okay? Imagine a landscape. I would generally draw birds in scenes of football games because I also like sports. So usually on one side, I had the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys, a guy named Danny White at the time, throwing a pass. At the other side, I had this guy named Drew Pearson, number 88, catching the touchdown. And in the middle, I put this beleaguered Minnesota Vikings defensive player being attacked by all sorts of birds of prey. (laughs) I drew birds to protect the Cowboys' victory which is somewhat ironic because I can't stand the Seahawks, I hate the Falcons, and I detest the Eagles. (laughs) Practicing and practicing and practicing, but there's one thing that over the course of my life that I've never been able to draw, and by the way, I still draw, I still love doing it. There's one thing I cannot draw, I can't figure it out to save my life, and that is I can't figure out how to draw humans. In particular, I can't figure out how to draw a human face. Stuff is weird, it's Picasso, things are in the wrong spot. It's kind of like Napoleon Dynamite trying to draw Trisha. It's just like two eyes working in different directions. It doesn't look right. And for me, the pinnacle of the drawing human genre was the caricature artist. You've seen these caricatures, right, at the fair or at like Magic Mountain. It's like a little booth. Some little kid comes in, some subject, they sit down in front of the caricature artist And he starts to draw, or she starts to draw, finds the most noticeable features about the kid or the adult, and blows them way out of proportion, right? Caricature artists. And we know during political season, that's always fun to do, right? When Donald becomes, you know, uh, Donald. (laughs) Good golly. That's the stuff of Halloween nightmares right there. I mean, oh, it's coming. I'm equal opportunity here because Hillary becomes (laughs) Hillary. What is going on with that? I'm amazed by it. You know, because caricature artists kind of work with this paradox. They draw something that's so real it doesn't even look real. I love caricatures, but, you know, when life starts to imitate art, we've got some problems. And would anyone here disagree with me when I say that this particular political season is one gigantic flaming pile of caricatures? Would anyone disagree with me when we start seeing people just distorted beyond reality? Political issues distorted beyond reality. Vote for Prop 56 or else all the baby seals will die. Vote no on Prop 56 or else I'll club all the baby seals. It's, it's just noise. It's just shouting. Pretty soon we have Democrats as demons, Republicans as reptiles. What do we do with that, right? Remarkably easy to forgo the hard work of empathy. It's the hard work of shutting our mouths for a change. It's the hard work of understanding a point of view thoroughly and carefully 
It's the hard work of speaking from a position of humility. You know, empathy is not this statement. I know what you're going through. No. It's actually the opposite. Empathy is this kind of statement. I I don't know what you're going through. But I'm here to listen. I'm here to find out. Imagine that kind of political debate. When's the last time you shut everything out and just had a good face-to-face conversation? Not with your bestie. With someone you've never met. Where you actually talked to them and not just waited for your next turn to speak. When's the last time you've looked them straight in the eyes until, well, we just don't look each other in the eyes anymore because what we like to do is look down. And look down. And just pray that phone buzzes as the way out of purgatory, if you will. Just hoping you'll be saved from a real vulnerable conversation by some little text that says, hey, you want to go get in and out later? What do we do with that? Professor Hayes comes to me a few uh, weeks ago and says, hey, Joel, I got this idea. I want to create a living art project. I want to create living art a place where we can kind of do, a place where we can kind of zag when the world is zigging. When everyone's shouting, I want to build a place, a space, where we can listen to one another. There's no distractions, no agenda, just humanity. Could you imagine just putting your phone away and not allowing it to ring, not allowing yourself to look at it, and spend time with another person finding out about them? Well, she and her uh, wonderful team of art students in Art 101, I think it is, and she came together and they decided to give it this lovely nickname called The Box. And you probably maybe have seen The Box around. It's been up in the olive kind of trees up over there. It's been down out in front here. Probably the name kind of sounds more like a medieval torture device, but let's get beyond that, okay? The Box. What if people just sat down, talked, and got to know one another? put up four minutes. Let's give it a four-minute conversation. We asked uh, Dr. Kane to just throw a random question out there. We have no idea what we're about to talk about, so let's find out. How has your family of origin shaped your thinking? Oh, gosh. You flipping? Uh, I don't care. You want to start? Sure. My family of origin was not good. Mm. So my family... My parents divorced when I was 10, and that was, like, pivotal change. Um, the peaceful kind or the No, not the peaceful, the very awful, pe- un- unpeaceful kind. Um, so from 10 till probably now, that's, that's, that's the changing point. Um, so that affects, you know, how I went into marriage, how I think about marriage, um, things how it affects how I think about motherhood. Um, do you ever find yourself, like, saying in a conversation, talking with, like, um, your kids, and all of a sudden go, oh, that was my mom. Okay. Or that was my dad coming out of me. That wasn't me. That was something else. Yeah. No, I think I, um, I think maybe from kids from divorced families, you, you don't want to be that. Maybe. You don't wanna, I don't want to be that. I, I, I don't want to ruin my kids' lives or something. <laughs> um, but, you know, the, it's, it, it's crazy how something so life-changing and pivotal and, and really quite awful um, you know, after my parents divorced, my dad 
um, started going to church. We didn't grow up Christian. Um, mm. And came to a Lutheran church, and a neighbor invited him. And, and so some, some pivot that was really horrible, really on the long, the long haul, turned into something really fabulous for me, um, mm. for my family. You know, coming, coming to know Christ and coming to um, be in this community. So it's hard, it's hard to feel how, still have those, those, um, that uh, after effect of growing up in a bad family. But also knowing that out of that bad family, really, really great things have happened. Well, your kids are going to end up being followers and disciples of Christ yeah. <laughs> in some weird way because of that fork. I, how, how, how about your family? That was boring. See, my, my dad was a pastor down at St. John's, uh-huh. and uh, I, I kind of always assumed my parents loved each other. They've been together for like 50-some-odd years. We just celebrated their 50th anniversary. But I remember him telling me about his dad and his dad's dad. I'm like, his dad would never tell my dad that he loved him, ever. Mm-hmm. Well, I never kind of got that experience. My dad kind of took that to heart and says, no, I'm not going to be that way for my son. Mm-hmm. I want Joel to always know that I love him. So then for me, that's the norm. And so when I wake up in the morning, gather up the kids, watch cartoons with them, sit side by side, I'll regularly tell them I love them and I'm proud of them and I I just want to be with them. But I didn't have to go through that huge consternation about trying to undo all the stuff that happens in me and try to figure out what's me talking, what's my parents talking. I was fortunate enough to have that, but if my dad wouldn't have the self-awareness to realize that he didn't want to be like his dad, again, the same kind of problem. And I'm sure I've got other flaws, lots of them. I mean, and my dad probably has a good share of that in my kind of well-being, but uh, I find myself grateful that I don't have to do the hard work of like chipping away all the stuff before you actually get to Joel. You know what I feel like? I don't feel like I'm always dealing with the stuff around me, and as a result, it's good and bad. It's good because I don't feel like I'm passing on too much baggage to my kids. Yeah, they're going to get my bad fashion sense. They're going to get some other, you know, things like that, but... Ultimately, okay, so what? That's small stuff. They're, I'm hoping I'm not going to be passing the big stuff to them, right? Where they can, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's like I'm wondering. I used to believe that it was all nurture, like these kids are this blank slate. But I realize, when you're a kid, I knew my daughter's personality at about 13 months. Yeah. She's like who she was at 13 months, only feistier and better in every way. Uh-huh. She's a tough little girl. Yeah. But so. I just don't want to mess that up, right? All of this family, I just don't want to ever mess that up, I guess. So. Yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. I... Do you get along better with your parents or your in-laws now? I don't talk to my parents. Okay. It's okay. It's better. It's better. It's better that way? It's better. What are I... your holidays like then? They're mellow. They've always been mellow. Just... Oh, we've hit zero. All right. There you go. Well, that's a good way to stop. Yeah, shoot. We could have talked for another six more <laughs> That's so simple, it's stupid. That was so simple, it was stupid. We didn't look down, we looked up. We need, for the sake of our nation, for the sake of our county, for the sake of this little town, for the sake of this school, for the sake of your dorm room, we need to be people of face-to-face conversations. Could you imagine if the question that came up would have been something like, hey, Joel, who are you voting for? And then I would have said, like, whoever. Half of you would be like, oh, he's one of those guys. Or I would have said the other person, they'd be like, 
and your armor would have been up. You might have done that. You might hear in Facebook says, oh, I can't wait to vote for this person. It just gets you a little riled for some reason, right? Because we want to build caricatures. We want to build them so bad. About two weeks ago, Pastor Hinkel came on up and talked about a story from John 4. If you remember, this is the story where Jesus confronts a Samaritan woman at a well. Do you remember the story? He's walking through Samaria. He gets tired. He sits down at a well. And about noon, this lady comes out, a Samaritan. Now, there's a really interesting conversation there. But what's also interesting is what's not being said. You know, probably, or you've heard at some point that Samaritans and Jews don't get along. Do you know why? Because 700 years before, some invaders came in into that particular area, kicked out the Jews, with a few that remained, intermarried those, and there became Samaria, Samaritans. So Jews, the Jews that kicked back, were kicked out, looked back at those Samaritans, and saw them as caricatures. You half-breeds, traitors, people under the influence of foreign idols. 700 years ago is when it happened. And Samaritans had the same caricature view, the same distorted view about Jews. Oh, those arrogant, self-righteous, elitist, always telling us who to be, where to worship. So they come down into this conversation. Jesus asks for a drink. And the first thing that the woman does is sees Jesus as a caricature of a Jewish man. She's like, how is it that you asked me for a drink? And Jesus would have every inclination on the other side to see her as that Samaritan. But you know what he does? He cuts through it. He cuts through it. And he says, oh, you want to talk about water? I, I could give you living water that would blow your mind. Living water of salvation. You see, the cultural features of both people started to reduce to their proper proportion when they did one simple thing. They looked each other face to face and started talking. Pretty soon, Jesus asked this really interesting question. He says, hey, uh, well, actually a command more than a question. Why don't you go get your uh, husband, bring him back here. And because of that face-to-faceness, all of a sudden some honesty is breaking through here and she's like, uh, I don't have a husband. And Jesus gets right to the source of who she is and says, you're right, you have no husband. Actually, you've had five husbands and the dude you're living with now ain't your husband. There was no exaggeration there. No distortion, just truth. And how did she respond? Well, a little bit later, she's like, okay, I can see that you're a prophet. No longer just a Jewish man starting to reduce proper features. I see that you're a prophet. And later on, you know what she does? She runs on into the city and says, guys, I think I found the Christ, the Messiah. I think I found the one we've been waiting for from old. All of these features starting to get clearer and clearer. Do you know what happens actually in the beginning of John? John has this awesome phrase here. Can we get back to the slides? Look at this. This is how John opens up his gospel. Just three chapters before. Read this with me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Jesus The incarnation of God. That word is referring to Jesus Christ. The incarnation of God among us. The funny thing though is that a word, unless it falls on ears, doesn't function properly. In order to function, it must be received. The word of Jesus is spoken by God and delivered precisely to humanity. In fact, the word of God prompts a response every time. In Isaiah 55, 
we find that the word of God goes out and always accomplishes the task for which it's been sent. The word goes out and necessarily creates a relationship. It necessarily has a bond with the hearer. And so with some apologies to my Christ College brethren, let's kind of turn this around. Maybe a way of reading this would be, in the beginning was the conversation. In the beginning was a conversation, an eye-to-eye conversation between God and you, between God and humanity. It's a conversation in which Jesus Christ initiates the action. He initiates the relationship. He sees you not as the caricature of your worst moments or your worst features. No, in fact, he's the only one who can actually see you for the true person you really are. And what's that most true identity about you? That you are loved, redeemed, blessed and paid for by the Almighty King himself. This back and forth, this conversation... It lies at the deepest heart of our Christian traditions. God initiates. We respond. God does something. We're thankful. God does something amazing and all we do is we listen and obey. Augustine had this phrase. St. Augustine. Some of you guys in core are familiar with this dude. He said this phrase and I'm going to massacre it so sorry Dr. Armstrong wherever you are. Interior intimo male. God is nearer to us than our innermost parts. He's nearer to you than your guts. He knows you more truly than you could possibly know yourself. So if that's the case, he sees me not as a caricature, he sees me in absolute truth. So listen to this, he speaks that reality to us. He says this, I created you with my own hands and our response is simple. Yes, that is most certainly true. He speaks to us and says, you need me. And we respond by saying, yes, this is most certainly true. He speaks to us and says, I have redeemed you, fill in your name. And we say, yes, that is most certainly true. He speaks to us and says, love one another in the same way. And our response is to do it because the love of God in Christ is the most certain truth. Guys, we're finishing up a train wreck of a political season. I was sick of this eight months ago. I don't know about you. 24 months ago, I was sick of this. I'm already sick of the next election in four years. (laughs) And you know the day after the election, this is what's going to happen. You're going to go on Facebook and find out, one, you voted for the wrong person. Or two, you voted for the wrong person. Or three, you should have voted. So I could tell you that you, in fact, voted for the wrong person. But what if this was a place that didn't snipe from the sidelines? What if this was a place that was more... What if this was a place that didn't sound like a comment thread at the back end of a YouTube video? And that vileness. What if this place is where we choose virtue over vitriol? What if this is a place where we listen to one another, not as caricatures, but as souls loved by God? The challenge will always be to love your neighbor and your enemy as God loves them. To see God as God, to see you as God sees you. Since God sees us as we all are, He created us, He defined us, He redeemed us, how are you going to respond today? The box is going to be around. Offer a conversation to someone. Be the other end of an empty conversation if you see some poor fool just sitting there by themselves. Come on in and sit down. The box is an invitation to be open, 
vulnerable, human. Take advantage of that before we forget what being human is really all about. 